Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a ginger beer. What do you have, Jenny? I'm drinking an amaretto sour. This week, we'll be diving into the mysterious death of the Summerton Man. This case has been unsolved for decades, and progress was recently made to identify who the Summerton Man is. Before we get started, we wanted to let everyone know that this episode will include discussion of suicide. Our case starts on the evening of November 30th, 1948, on Somerton Beach, a seaside resort a few miles south of Adelaide, Australia. A couple spotted a well-dressed man lying on the beach with his head leaning against the seawall, legs stretched out, and feet crossed. He extended his right arm upward, then let it fall back to the ground. The couple presumed that this man was drunk. The next morning, the man was lying dead in the exact same spot. A half-smoked cigarette was sitting on the man's collar as if it had fallen from his mouth. The man was taken to the Royal Adelaide Hospital three hours later. There, Dr. John Barclay Bennett put his time of death at no earlier than 2 a.m. and noted the likely cause of death as heart failure, adding that he suspected poisoning. The Somerton man was well-built, about 40 to 50 years old, 5 feet 11 inches tall, with gray-blue eyes and gingery brown hair that was graying at the sides. The contents of his pockets were spread out on a table and included tickets from Adelaide to the beach, a pack of chewing gum, some matches, two combs, and a pack of Army Club cigarettes containing seven cigarettes of another more expensive brand called Conceitas. There was no wallet, no cash, and no ID. None of the man's clothes had any clothing tags, and one pant pocket had been neatly repaired with an unusual variety of orange thread. The results of the postmortem did little to identify the man or what had caused his death. It revealed that the corpse's pupils were smaller than normal and unusual, that his spleen was, quote, strikingly large and firm, about three times normal size, end quote, and his liver was distended with congested blood. In the man's stomach, Pathologist John Dwyer found the remains of his last meal, a pasty, as well as blood. The blood suggested poisoning, though there was nothing to show that the poison had been in the food. The man's peculiar behavior on the beach seemed less like drunkenness than it did a lethal dose of something taking slow effect. But repeated tests on both blood and organs by an expert chemist failed to reveal the faintest trace of any poison. No cause of death was ever found for the Somerton man. Coroner Thomas Cleland was stumped. The only practical solution he was informed by an eminent professor, Sir Cedric Stanton Hicks, was that a very rare poison had been used, one that, quote, decomposed very early after death, end quote, leaving no trace. The only poisons capable of this were so dangerous and deadly that Hicks would not say their names aloud in open court. Instead, he passed Cleland a scrap of paper on which he had written the names of two possible candidates, Digitalis and Stropbanthin. Hicks was suspicious of Stropbanthin, a rare glycoside derived from the seeds of some African plants. Government chemical analyst Robert Cowan said, quote, I think the immediate cause of death was heart failure, but I am unable to say what factor caused heart failure, end quote. A full set of fingerprints was taken by police and circulated through Australia and then throughout the English-speaking world. No one could identify them. People all over Adelaide were escorted to the mortuary in the hopes that they could give the man a name. Some thought they knew the man from photos published in the newspapers. Others were the distraught relatives of missing persons, but no one recognized the body. 
By January 11th, the South Australian police had investigated and dismissed pretty much every lead they had. The investigation widened in an attempt to locate any abandoned personal possessions like left luggage that might suggest that the dead man had come from out of state. This meant checking every hotel, dry cleaners, lost property office, and railway station for miles around. This did produce some results. On the 12th, detectives sent to the main railway station in Adelaide were shown a brown suitcase that had been deposited in the cloakroom there on November 30th. The staff didn't remember anything about the owner and the suitcase contents were not much more revealing. The case did contain a large reel of orange thread identical to that used to repair the dead man's trousers, but painstaking care had been applied to remove practically every trace of the owner's identity. The case had no stickers or markings, and a label had been torn off from one side. The tags were missing from all but three items of clothes inside, and these bore the name Keen with a particular spelling because it ended in an E but it proved impossible to trace anyone of that name and the police concluded that someone, quote, had purposefully left them on, end quote. The remainder of the contents were also not helpful. There was a stencil kit of the sort, quote, used by the third officer or merchant ships responsible for the stenciling of cargo, end quote. A table knife with a half cut down and a coat stitch using a feather stitch unknown in Australia. A tailor identified the stitchwork as American in origin, suggesting the colt and perhaps its wearer had traveled during the war years. But searches of shipping and immigration records from across the country again produced no results. In April, four months after the discovery of the body, another search produced a final piece of evidence, one that would prove to be the most baffling of all. A small pocket sewn in the waistband of the dead man's pants were discovered. Inside, tightly rolled, was a small scrap of paper which read Tom and Sog. The police reporter for the Adelaide Advertiser recognized the words as Persian and called the police to suggest they obtain a copy of an 11th century book of poetry, the Rumayat. This work, written in the 12th century, had become popular in Australia during the war after being translated. It turned out Tom and Strahd roughly translated to, quote, the end or finish, end quote. A cast of the Somerton man's face was taken before he was finally buried in a grave under a headstone marked the unknown man, and this grave was made to be easily exhumed. Eight months after the investigation had begun, the search for the right copy of the Rubaiyat finally produced results. A man walked into the detective office in Adelaide with a copy of the book and a strange story. Early the previous December, just after the discovery of the unknown body, he had gone for a drive with his brother-in-law in a car he had kept parked a few hundred yards from Somerton Beach. The brother-in-law had found a copy of the Rubaiyat lying on the floor by the rear seats. Each man had assumed it belonged to the other, and the book had sat in the glove compartment ever since. Alerted by a newspaper article about the search, the two men had gone back to take a closer look. They found that part of the final page had been torn out and went to the police. Detective Sergeant Lionel Lean took a closer look at the book. Almost at once, he found a telephone number penciled on the rear cover. The phone number was unlisted, but it proved to belong to a young nurse named Jessie Jo Thompson, who lived just a few hundred meters from Somerton Beach. 
She admitted that she had indeed presented a copy of the Rubaiyat to a man she had known during the war. She gave the detectives his name, Alfred Boxel. But Boxel turned out to still be alive, and he still had the copy of the Rubaiyat Thompson had given him. Thompson was not extensively questioned by the police, but she recalled that sometime the previous year, she had come home to be told by neighbors that an unknown man had called and asked for her. When shown the cast of the dead man's face, she seemed, quote, completely taken aback to the point of giving the appearance she was about to faint, end quote, said Lean. She seemed to recognize the man, yet firmly denied that he was anyone she knew. The only remaining clue was the faint impression of writing Sergeant Lean had noticed in the Glenelg Rubaiyat. When it was examined under ultraviolet light, five lines of jumbled letters could be seen, the second of which had been crossed out. The first three lines were separated from the last two by a pair of straight lines with an X written over them. Police did what they could to crack what appeared to be a code but were unsuccessful. They sent the message to Naval Intelligence, home to the finest cipher experts in Australia, and allowed the message to be published in the press. This produced a frenzy of amateur code breaking before the Navy concluded that the code appeared unbreakable. To this day, the code has not been broken. The case went cold, but gained popularity over the past few decades with armchair investigators. In April 2021, the Summerton man's body was exhumed in order to analyze his DNA and hopefully be identified. Des Bray, South Australia Police Detective Superintendent, said, quote, It's important for everybody to remember the Summerton man is not just a curiosity or a mystery to be solved. It's somebody's father, son, perhaps grandfather, uncle, or brother. And that's why we're doing this and trying to identify him, end quote. So like we said, the case has been unsolved for many decades, but let's look at some theories as to who people think the Summerton man was and how and why he died. So the first theory is suicide. This theory simply states that the Summerton man poisoned himself and died by suicide. He had the cryptic phrase, the end or finished from the Rubaiyat on his person at the time of his death, leading many to think that he was suicidal. Another man in Australia took his life by poisoning himself, and a copy of the Rubaiyat was found with his body. Another theory, and perhaps one of the more popular ones, is that the Summerton man was a former or secret lover of Thompson and the father of her son. The Summerton man was killed so that he could stay away from the child or Thompson. People pointed out that Thompson was shocked and nearly fainted when shown the body cast. She told the police she didn't recognize his face because she had met someone else and didn't want to complicate matters. She lived just hundreds of meters from where the Summerton man's body was found. Some also think that her son looks like the Summerton man. They both have similar dental abnormalities and Thompson was unmarried the year her son was born. It's theorized that they knew each other during war times. Her current boyfriend or someone she knew possibly killed the Summerton man to get him out of their lives. It can also be connected to the first theory as he may have committed suicide because he wasn't allowed to see his child. Another very popular theory is that the Summerton man was a spy and was killed by fellow spies. His death took place near the start of the Cold War, and Russian spies were known to be in the area at the time of his death. And Joe Thompson's own daughter theorized that her mother could have been a Soviet spy. She said that her mother had a quote-unquote dark side and claimed to have known who the Summerton Man was. There was also a British rocket testing facility within several hundred miles of Adelaide. 
and the chemicals found in the man's system are not common, easy-to-get drugs. And it's been suggested that the poison was administered to him via his tobacco. So this could explain why his army club pack of cigarettes contained seven different types of cigarettes. And Alfred Boxel, the man that Thompson claimed to have given the Rubaiyat to, he also worked in intelligence during World War II. Years after the Somerton man's death, an investigator stumbled across a neglected piece of evidence, a statement given in 1959 by a man who had been on Somerton Beach. A witness told police that he had seen, quote, a man carrying another on his shoulder near the water's edge, end quote. And he also said that he could not describe the man. The witness claimed he saw this while walking toward the spot where the Somerton man's body ended up being found. The witness again assumed that he was someone carrying a drunk friend. But could the Somerton man have been the person that was being carried? Some other reasons as to why people think the Somerton man could be a spy is because he was in good shape, had very defined calves. There was also that strange code found in the book which could have been a secret spy code, and the labels of his clothing were removed. So Del, what do you think led to the Somerton man's death, and do you think this case will ever be solved, or will the man ever be identified? So I think that he was a spy, and that he was sent on a mission to Australia, but a lot of times governments don't want their spies to have any actual familial ties. And so the fact that he possibly had a son could have led to whoever was his agency to need to get rid of him. And they did that through poisoning him. It's not a surprise that governments would have access to that type of poison. And because he worked for them, they would know what the best method would be to actually administer the poison, such as putting it in his cigarettes. I do think that Joe Thompson knows way more. And I think that while I don't think that she is a spy, I think that he may have divulged information to her that he shouldn't have. I don't think that this case is ever going to be solved, and I highly doubt he's ever going to be identified. One thing that happens when governments get rid of their spies, it's very hard for the general public to really know exactly what happened. I think that in some classified file somewhere in Australia or America or Russia, there is a complete dossier on what actually happened, but that's the type of stuff that's under the highest national security and likely never to be declassified. What do you think happened? I 100% agree that Joe Thompson knows more than she let on, and I do think she was involved some way, whether it was spy activity or something else. I lean towards spies because, like you said, Del, the poison is very hard to explain, and it really seemed like someone knew what they were doing. It wasn't just poison that could be stumbled upon. So I think he was definitely murdered. Maybe he knew too much information. Maybe he got involved with the wrong people. He wasn't, you know, doing his spy duties well. I don't know. The Joe Thompson thing really pisses me off. I think she really was the key. It's clear that she knew him in some capacity. You don't just pass out because you see a cast of a stranger's face, even if they're dead. I'm sure it's very uncomfortable and unsettling, but I don't think the average person would pass out by that. This was in the late 40s and people weren't used to seeing stuff like that so 
I guess I'll play devil's advocate there. But it's no coincidence that her phone number was found in that copy of the Rubaiyat. I think her unwillingness to identify him also supports that spy theory. Because if she was a spy, she obviously needed to protect herself. And that eyewitness account of seeing someone carrying a man's body, if that's true, I mean, that really supports the murder theory. I think suicide is probable, but I don't really give it much merit in this case. I wish we knew if the police looked into the man who turned in the copy of the Rubaiyat, because that story is so strange and coincidental to me. I guess I can see, you know, someone that killed him just tossing the book in maybe a car that had an open window, or if the car was unlocked, they just placed it in there. But I don't know, that kind of seems like you want to get caught almost if you're doing that. Like, it's not the best way to get rid of evidence. So I think that whole thing is so weird. Like we're theorizing, the Somerton man could potentially have been a spy. And he's not the only John or Jane Doe that has been killed, unidentified, and is believed to be a spy. So the first such example is the East Isle woman. In November of 1970, the badly burnt body of a woman was found in a remote spot in Norway's East Island Valley. The front of her body was so badly burnt that they could not imagine what she originally looked like and police found nothing to identify the woman. An autopsy revealed a bruise on her neck that could have been from a blow or a fall, smoke particles in her lung, a high concentration of carbon monoxide in her blood, and 50 to 70 sleeping pills in her stomach. The autopsy concluded the woman died from a combination of carbon monoxide poisoning and ingesting a large number of sleeping pills. Days later, police found two suitcases at Bergen's railway station's left luggage department. One of the suitcases contained prescription-free glasses and a fingerprint that matched the woman's. The suitcase also included clothes, several wigs, German and Norwegian money, and Belgian, British, and Swiss coins, a comb, and a hairbrush, cosmetics, some teaspoons, and a tube of eczema cream. The labels on the eczema cream had been removed. Police traced her boots to a Norwegian shoe store. This helped trace her to a nearby hotel where she checked in under the name Vanilla Lorch, which turned out to be a false name. She had checked into several hotels under various false names using multiple passports. She had asked for multiple room changes at the hotels as well. People speculated she was a spy. There weren't many foreign tourists in the area, but there were many Russians and Israeli spies in Norway during the Cold War. Israeli agents were even questioned and asked if they knew her. Security services were interested in reports that the woman had been seen observing the military test out new rockets in western Norway, but there weren't any clear conclusions from their investigation. She had been wearing a lot of clothes that did not have tags on them, and labels on her cosmetics and medications were torn off. Police also found a coded note in one of the suitcases. It appeared to show dates of when she traveled to different cities. Her death was determined to be a suicide, but many disagree, including police. Several tissue samples from the woman's organs have been stored at Hawkland University Hospital in hopes of extracting DNA. Another more recent case is that of Jennifer Fergie. 
In June 1995, a woman was found dead in her hotel room in Oslo, Norway from an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. She had checked into the hotel as Jennifer Fergate or Fairgate and had never presented ID. These are believed to be false names and she likely lied about her age as well. All of the labels were cut out of her clothes and she was carrying 34 rounds of ammunition in her bag. She also spoke English and German but did not have a distinguishable accent. Though she had multiple bras and items of clothing for her upper body, the only clothes for her lower body she had were the ones she was wearing at the time of her death. A witness described her as wearing a skirt, but this was missing from the scene, as was a pair of shoes a room steward said she saw when she cleaned the room. Her body was exhumed in 2016, and DNA samples were taken for the first time. She has yet to be identified. But because of her lack of clothing, supply of ammunition, well-kept appearance, missing items, as well as her knowledge of different languages, some believe that Jennifer Fergate was a spy. Like we said, DNA was recently taken from the Summerton man's body in hopes of identifying living relatives. Each year, an estimated 4,400 unidentified bodies are found, and about 1,000 of them remain John or Jane Doe cases after a year passes. But investigators and family members are using genetic genealogy to help identify these nameless individuals. One of the popular American genetic genealogy nonprofits is the DNA Doe Project. The DNA Doe Project takes a sample of the unidentified person's DNA and puts it through genome sequencing to develop a full genetic profile. From there, potential family members are identified through this DNA database and genetic genealogists map out a family tree in hopes of discovering the identity of the Jane or John Doe. Uploading DNA profiles to GEDmatch is encouraged for people who have missing family members. Many of these cases are solved when distant family members come up as a match. Quote, it's the second and third cousin matches that really crack these cases. It doesn't have to be, you know, a sibling or a parent that uploads the Jed match to solve the case, end quote. So let's talk about a few well-known John and Jane Doe cases that were identified recently thanks to genetic genealogy and familial DNA, because there have been quite a few in the past, I would say, three or so years. The first one that I wanted to talk about that I'm really glad was identified very recently was that of septic tank Sam. So in 1977 in Alberta, Canada, a man's body was found in a septic tank on an abandoned farm. He had been shot, beaten, burned, and sexually mutilated. His face was reconstructed several times in hopes of a family member or friend coming forward to identify the man. On June 30th, 2020, he was identified as Gordon Edward Sanderson of Edmonton, Canada. Using DNA extracted from Sanderson's bones, Houston-based Othram Inc. built a genetic profile and family tree by uploading his information to American public genetic databases. Mounties used the results to reach out to possible family members and then matched his DNA to his sister, Joy Sanderson, last year. Gordon's killer is most likely dead and yet to be identified, but we really hope that his family has some peace of mind. So the next case is that of Anita Patel. The body of a woman was discovered on March 14, 1968 in a Huntington Beach, California farm field by three boys who were playing. She had been raped, severely beaten, and her neck was slashed. In July 2020, the oldest Orange County Jane Doe was identified through genetic genealogy as 26-year-old Anita Patel. 
Her remains were taken home to her family in Maine. Police were also able to identify her killer as Johnny Crisco, who died in 2015. He was identified through DNA found on a cigarette near Fertil's body. It really seems like the use of familial DNA and genetic genealogy is going to be even more commonplace like in the next decade to solve crime. So, so what are your thoughts on the use of those two factors? I think that they're great. As long as you are getting permission from people to use their DNA, I don't see anything wrong with it. And I actually think that it's probably going to become more and more common as people learn about this technology. What do you think about it? It's really exciting to see, um, in my opinion. I love hearing stories about it. The only thing is it's very expensive right now to get this done. And, you know, this isn't something that like the average police department is probably going to reach out to someone about. It takes a lot of funding. And I would assume private funds to do stuff like this or to at least assist the police in doing so. So hopefully it will become more commonplace and less expensive. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments who you think the Summerton man was and what caused his death. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode where we look into the death of Brittany Murphy. As always, stay safe.